Welcome to a beautiful day in the Swamp Ward. Down a gentle slope from here is the Cataraqui River, on its way to meet Lake Ontario. A causeway crosses the river, connecting Kingston to the east. And the hum of cars on the causeway is a sound that people who live here know well. Hot summer nights, brisk winter mornings, it's always there. In six episodes, this podcast series introduces you to the Swamp Ward through its sounds and its voices. I've spent a lot of time talking with people about this place, and I want to share with you what makes it special, what makes it ordinary, what makes it real. Swamp Ward, yeah. It was like another universe. We used to go and raise proper hell as kids in there. A lot of stuff like that went on back then. This was years and years ago. I never changed my mind about what we did at the time. I knew we were in the swamp. It was swamp. So then we got nicknamed Swamp Ward. Swamp Ward. Swamp Ward. Swamp Ward. Swamp Ward. Swamp Ward. What's a swamp water? Always a swamp water. I'm Laura Murray, and you're listening to Stories of the Swamp Ward from Kingston, Ontario, Canada. If you go down to the corner of Charles and Baggett Streets in Kingston, you'll find it very quiet. And ugly, too. Tall chain-link fences on both sides of the street, expanses of gravel and weeds behind them. Not much to linger over. But every vacant lot has a story, or several. So, this is the Bennett's episode. It's about Bennett's supermarket. As they say, gone but not forgotten. The Bennett's slogan in the 50s, emblazoned right up on its sign, was where food buying is most satisfactory. I know that because I've got a snapshot of a wedding party dressed to the nines standing in front of the store. The people aren't related to the Bennetts. Maybe they're waiting for the bride and groom who are having pictures taken in Alice Bennett's garden, which is said to have been beautiful. I love this photo because it really captures the close relationship between the community and the store. Here's what Kevin Blaney remembers. When I was a young kid, I used to work at Bennett's, and uh, I remember this car would out pull up in front of Bennett's every once in a while, and a couple of the guys would walk out, and they would pop the trunk up. Suits. Tons of suits. They were hot, you know, they'd come from Toronto or Montreal. They would just grab three or four of them and move on. Pay for them and they'd be gone. A lot of stuff like that went on back then, you know. It was a way of life. My first job, I worked for a drugstore and I used to deliver for them on a bicycle. I worked there for about two years and I got on at Bennett's and I thought I died and went to heaven. It was lovely because, you know, being a delivery boy for a drugstore on a bike, you'd have to go out in the rain when it's cold. But when I got a job at Vince, I was like, you're inside. I did. I worked on produce. That was great. Truck would come in every other couple of days and we'd have to unload it and then we stocked the shelves. Bennett's did a lot for this end of town. They were very, very good to people. Kevin really packs in all the Bennett's themes. The work, the gratitude, and even the slight edge. Things happened at Bennett's, and Bennett's was an impressive store. Down uh, by Baggett Street, there was uh, Bennett's. 
the home of uh, Red Brand Beef. And that was the, like their calling card. And uh, my parents knew some of the people that worked at Bennett's and actually the, she, they knew the families that owned Bennett's. So they started giving their allegiance to that. Like Bennett's was like a state of the art kind of a supermarket where the other ones were more like grocery stores. And so it was the start of this uh, fluorescent lights, large aisles. And uh, so it kind of looked better. So who were the Bennetts? Well, Hugh Bennett and his son George started the store in the 1920s, and the whole family worked there. Let's hear from two Bennett cousins about their memories of the family business. Well, I'm Isabel Gordon, and I've lived here in Kingston for 91 years, and uh, always enjoyed living in Kingston and in Swamp Ward, where we grew up. I remember my grandfather Bennett, he worked at McGowan Cigar Factory. He was the manager down there, corner of uh, King and uh, Brock. It was a cigar factory. And then he and Uncle George decided to build a store and started there in 1925. Yeah, so I remember Grandpa. He worked in the store and they had a little cage there for him where he took the money. We would go down to the store and we weren't allowed to ask for it an ice cream cone, unless they offered us one. My grandpa would offer us an ice cream cone and we could take it. <laughs> My grandmother, Bennett, was a, a beautiful looking woman, had beautiful brown eyes, and uh, very, very generous. <laughs> My grandfather, Bennett, used to say, when he came in for a bowl of soup, all he got was some water and onions because she gave it all away. <laughs> My name is Robert Bennett Martin. I was born in 1933. My mother was a Bennett, and uh, they had a grocery store at Baggett and Charles. My grandfather that started that with his son, George. George Bennett was pretty much the driver, the son, and we all grew up worked in the grocery store, bagging sugar, bagging potatoes, that kind of thing. And, you know, everybody worked there. My mother worked there. Uh, she was telling me at one point, you know, cleaning, you know, the store. Uncle George had a saying, <laughs> you know, I'd be standing doing nothing in the grocery store, nothing. And Uncle George would say, now, Bob, uh, there's oranges over there. Uh, to be taken out of the case and put into the uh, stock. And when you have time, would you mind doing that? You know, sort of thing. I'm thinking, well, she said, yeah, I guess I've got time. You know, sort of thing. I'm not doing anything. <laughs> no, when you've got time. <laughs> and he wasn't nasty about it, you know? He was nice about it. George was a master entrepreneur. What he would do was he would get three or four or five boxcar loads of turkeys at Christmas time and bring them in and sell those turkeys out of the store. Boxcar loads. You know, they, he was selling them as a lost leader, right? You know, there was no money made on them, but at the same time, people were coming in to buy other things while they were there to get the turkey, eh? You know, that's where I learned about lost leaders. Bob wasn't the only one who looked up to George. When he died, he died in uh, Providence Manor, and uh, he had been good to the sisters. He had always brought uh, 
groceries to the uh, sisters and to the Providence Manor. And uh, the mother superior and so on were all, you know, very much infatuated with the guy. But we're getting a bit ahead of ourselves. George had a brother, Cecil. Well, Uncle Cecil was the playboy. He was his mother's favorite. During the 20s, he'd be, you know, driving the grocery truck around, and he was a top-notch guy. He was a boozer. He, uh, what I remember of him, he had a great personality. He was, you know, well-liked. And he was a conservative. My uncle uh, George was a liberal, and that's the way they worked the thing. He was an alcoholic, yeah. yeah. He joined the AA, and uh, that helped him a lot. But when he was trying to get over that, he used to come up to our place and you know, sleep on the Chesterfield there, and Mom would look after him a bit. <laughs> um, yeah. yeah, he uh, then he started you know, working with Uncle George and, and with the army camps and taking groceries over to the army camps and that. Oh, yeah, and Uncle George looked after him, too. <laughs> now, didn't he run a grocery store of his own on the corner at some point? And how did that come about? The store was there, and Uncle Cecil decided he'd get into the grocery business, become an independent grocer. But, it, you know, there was, wasn't any money made out of it. It was craziness. Uncle Cecil didn't have the drive that uh, George had. There was a chap by the name of Cecil Bennett, and he called it Cecil's at the corner of Charles in Montreal. And uh, he, as I recall, was the first one that opened on a Sunday, a grocery store. That was unheard of. Sunday was, was a holy day, and we were sent to Sunday school, of course. When we come home from Sunday school, you just hung around. You didn't, but we'd sneak out and do something, whatever. I went to Sunday school in the basement of, of uh, Church of the Good Shepherd, uh, and I was always rowdy, always in school, Sunday school as well teacher would kick you out. Well, okay, that's good. If they ask you to leave, well, then you got your change in your pocket, you got your bicycle, so a race like heck down to the store and spend it on candy. What I remember of him was that when he was dying, he was drinking uh, gin straight, uh, just like water. And he always said, I don't give a damn, you know, sort of thing, I'm having a good time. But when it came time to die, he cried like a baby. That's what I remember about Uncle Cecil. Um, he didn't want to die. Though Cecil was the black sheep, it so happened that his brother George and his wife Alice were not able to have children. So it was Cecil's son who became the third generation to enter into the running of the family business. Cecil's grandson, Gary, remembers. My dad eventually moved back into George's house, and that's where he lived till he died. Hmm. Because once again, he just didn't want to leave the neighborhood. He didn't want to live anywhere else, and he lived in that house till the uh, till the day he died. They were all large, growing families down here. And, we, and as my dad said, when times get tough, he said the last thing people stop buying is food. So as long as you're giving them good value and good service, they'll keep coming back every day. And that was kind of what he focused on. One thing I used to love as a kid is my dad would give me the keys to one of the trucks and he'd give me a, a big wad of money and he said, why don't you drive out in the farmer's fields and, and stop anywhere you see farmers selling produce or anything. He said, I want you to stop. He said, I want you to buy everything they have. 
But the grocery business was changing. From an independence point of view, we bought everything direct. We bought Tide detergents from Procter & Gamble. We bought our soup from Campbell's, like directly, like the salesman from Campbell's would actually come into the store. And you'd order 100 or 200 or 300 cases or whatever. But what was happening over time is when the minimum orders used to be 100 cases of Tide or they wouldn't call on you, well, then suddenly the minimum order got to be 200, then it was 300, then it was 500, then it was 1,000. And you had to buy in those quantities to be competitive with the larger grocery stores that quite simply had the, the buying power and the clout. And then the big meat packers got to the point they wouldn't deliver meat to your back door unless you had a check for them when they showed up. So under Cecil's grandson Dave, Generation 4, Bennett's kept growing. In fact, that was another of their slogans, even in the early days, always growing. That I got from a photo of one of their trucks back in the 20s. It was a big duplex right here that, was, that he tore down. There was houses on Charles Street that he tore down. And... Uh, and then they put up this warehouse affair. Yeah, yeah. Warehouses and parking lots replaced houses around the store. While some neighbors admired the entrepreneurialism, traffic started to be a problem. Supplies that used to come in by train started to arrive by transport truck. Trucks, garbage, shopping carts, rats. Some neighbors started to get resentful. City planners at the time were keen to separate out commercial from residential areas. They stopped any further expansion. Navigating all this, the Bennetts threw in their lot with a chain, no frills. The amazing thing at this point in the story is that, if anything, the store, now a not terribly shiny branch of a very unglamorous chain, seemed to gain even more mystique. One woman told me she had a marriage proposal from a stranger in the Isle of No Frills, which didn't surprise her. Or me. The people you would meet in that store... Wow, it was really theater. It was theater. There'd be people who would fill up grocery carts who couldn't pay for them, but they liked the idea that they could or that they could shop, and they would leave the court. And the, the person at the counter was, that's okay, that's okay, Ethel. So we'll put it away, that's fine. And it was, they were amazing. Uh, they were all social workers, kind of, and I guess, because they were very good with the people who were there. They were check signed, there were professors there, there were uh, 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 you know, people getting their family allowance check signed, there were a variety of, of people that, that were in the grocery store, and that made it colorful, so, so colorful. Um, I was very sad to see that store move, because it was a uh, it was kind of like the city hall of our neighborhood. A uh, shopping cart is much more than something you put your groceries in at a grocery store. I learned that. <laughs> Well, I've hauled them out of the river, I've hauled them out of swamps, I've hauled them out of apartment buildings. Uh, the, the, we only had so many shopping carts, and some days when we got really, really busy, and we'd actually run out of shopping carts. People would be standing there waiting, that's so busy the store was. We'd run out of shopping carts. So I'd get in my truck and I'd drive around the neighborhood, and you could always find a few shopping carts somewhere. And people use them for moving, you know. I'd see them going by with televisions and clothes and everything else, and sometimes it'd be like a little parade of them, three going down the street, so I'd pull over and tell them, you know, what are you going to be done? And they said, okay, well, can you just leave me a new address and I'll come and get them in a day or two? And that's kind of what you did, you know, you didn't dump everybody's belongings on the street, you just kind of felt that was your way, once again, of 
contributing a little to the urban needs and the, and the modal needs and the transportation needs of this part of the city. When we're talking about uh, no frills, it reminds me of a, an art project. It was a community art project. I think there was a team of 10 of us who lived in the community. We were giving cameras and we would decide on a storyline. My storyline was grocery carts. I just photographed them wherever I found them. They were everywhere. Yeah, absolutely everywhere. Yeah. And we just kind of uh, documented this community through that project and through uh, photographs. The other thing about the grocery cart project was that it did give me a chance to talk to people because I asked people as part of this if I could photograph what they had in their cart. And they would tell me about what they had in their cart. Um, and uh, it was kind of touching, actually, who had what and why. Sometimes it was about money, sometimes it was about illness, sometimes it was, you know, shopping for someone else. Um, things that weren't special were usually in the cart. Um, but the carts with like large bags of pasta and not much else, you know. Remember, I would do it outside the store, not inside the store. So it was only people who left with the grocery cart, with food in it, who I spoke with. And there certainly were people who didn't want to take part in it. But, uh, you know, uh, most of them did. Um, and I didn't take photograph of their face, but their hands would sometimes be in the photo with the, with the cart. Sometimes they're shoes. In 2008, No Frills closed its store on Bagot Street. The parent company tore down all the buildings. It still owns the land. I guess someday somebody will offer a big price for it and something will happen there. Chances are you will never be able to buy a bag of potatoes on that piece of land again. These days you can buy a wild rice salad or coconut hemp square at the cafe now inhabiting Cecil Bennett's old store over on Montreal Street. But that's not quite enough to feed a neighborhood, is it? Thanks so much for listening to Stories of the Swamp Ward from Kingston, Ontario, Canada. Stories of the Swamp Ward is produced by me, Laura Murray, with audio production and story consulting by the very valued Phil Lichty. Jeff Elliott did the final mixing and mastering. Music is by Sam Allison. Today, you heard the voices of Garth Amy, Susan Anderson, Gary Bennett, Kevin Blaney, Ken Cuthbertson, Bruce Downey, Isabel Gordon, Bill Hackett, Bob Martin, Herb Sturgis, and Preston Sturgis. Interviews were conducted by Laura Murray, Scott Rutherford, Jamie Swift, and Lauren Luchensky. Other assistants along the way came from Mark Shaw, Ronan Goldfarb, Yanni Pantis, Justine Hobbs, and Ella Mackay Singh. Queen's University and the City of Kingston Heritage Fund provided essential and generous financial support. And thanks also to Friends of Kingston Inner Harbour and CFRC, Queen's Campus Radio 101.9, our partners in these podcasts. If you want to know more about this little spot of the world, check out swampwardhistory.com, the website of the Swamp Ward and Inner Harbour History Project. 
And there's a special companion blog post to this particular podcast episode at swampwordhistory.com slash where food buying is most satisfactory. You'll see great photos there, so you don't have to rely only on your mind's eye. Our six-part series is almost over, but we're going to go out with a bang. Listen next to the episode about political agitators in Kingston in the late 1960s. Hear about rent strikes. On the date that the vote was coming, the whole place was packed with our supporters. Radical media. All power to the people. And motorcycles. I hope you'll listen to it.